Well, as we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, we've covered the first four chapters in their entirety and part of chapter 5. And we're in a section of the book where Paul is not so much focusing on what God has done for His people, but on what God's people must do in response to what God has done for them. But we have to remember that this is one letter. This is one letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in a place called Ephesus. And so though we're taking several months to study it in great detail, these people would have heard it read to them in one sitting. And so what we don't want to do is divorce what God has done for His people with what God's people must do in response to what God has done for them. Those things go together in the book of Ephesians. And so even though what God has done for His people is not particularly in focus in this passage, we want to understand it in that context. The primary imperative in this section, or the the primary command that Paul is telling us, this is what you need to do, is in verse 16, making the best use of the time, or make the best use of the time. That's the primary imperative, and, and everything else in this passage is modifying that. It's, it's explaining that, it's expanding upon that, it's describing what that looks like, etc., etc. But the main imperative that Paul's trying to bring across in this section is make the best use of the time. <clears throat> and one commentator, Harry Up Richard, says that time is kairos, not chronos. In other words, the Greek word that's translated in our English Bibles as time here is kairos, not chronos, which means a significant season rather than hours or minutes. That's what the word kairos means. So another way to understand that would be make the best use of the moment or make the best use of each moment. And so the way that we would distinguish even in the English language between what time is it or the day and age that we're living in Right? Or it is 8 o'clock, or it is a crucial moment. That's kind of the distinction between these two Greek words. And so, what Paul is saying in this section is something like make the best use of the moment. Make the best use of the day and age that you're living in, kind of thing. That's more the emphasis that Paul is bringing here. So, make the best use of the moment. That's what we should do. That's the imperative in this section. But as I said, we don't want to simply read the imperative, make the, read the command without understanding the framework within which the command is given. In other words, what God has done for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that you are not your own, you were bought with a price. This is speaking to Christians. This is speaking to Christians. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. And in the context, it's referring to the price of Christ's death on your behalf. Christ's life given as a ransom for you. So that death and hell no longer have a claim on you. So that you're no longer in the dominion of darkness. So that you are no longer uh, going through this life as if you're your own. Doing what you want. Doing what you think is best. And so on and so forth. But also having no one but yourself ultimately looking after you and watching over you. But since Christ has purchased you, now you are no longer 
you no longer need to be the only one looking out for yourself, for, for you belong to Christ and God's benevolent providence is unfolded to you day by day as you go through the valley of the shadow of death. God is there with you and so on and so forth. But part and parcel of this is you are no longer to be living for what you want to be living for. You are no longer to be living for your own priorities, to do your own will, etc., etc. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So when we, when we think about that, when we think about the gospel that Christ Jesus came into this world and He was born under the law to be a perfect law keeper on behalf of us who were law breakers because for our law breaking we deserved to go to hell. Christ Jesus came, lived a life of perfect law keeping and died on the cross bearing the wrath of God that we deserved such that we would be spared from the fate that we deserve, which is to go to hell and be punished for our unrighteousness. Christ gives us His righteousness in the place of our unrighteousness and takes upon Himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And so it is that we who have trusted in Christ Jesus are forgiven for our sin, pardoned, clothed in His righteousness, and we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to make the best use of the moment. When we think about it in that context, what we realize is that making the best use of the moment is a stewardship issue. A stewardship issue. If you lend somebody $20 and ask them to go to the supermarket and pick you up a few things, you write down for them a list of what they're to pick up, they're not at liberty to take your $20 and go do whatever they want to do with your $20 at the supermarket. Or come back and tell you, well, I didn't go to the supermarket after all. I decided to do this or that instead. They are a steward of your money. And they need to go and make the best use of your money. And in the context, making the best use of your money is doing what you told them to do with it. So it is with our lives. Since we are not our own and we have been bought with a price, when we are told here to make the best use of each moment, what we need to understand is that we're not at liberty to decide what that will be. But as it says in this passage immediately after that, in verse 17, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. And we are to do not our own will, but the will of the Lord. This is what it means to make the best use of each moment. <coughs> now, this runs across the grain, against the grain of the way that most people think of their lives. We regularly run into people who think, well, it's my own life. I can do with it how I want. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? Well, granted, who am I to tell you how to live your life? Fair, fair point. But who is God to tell you how to live your life. How dare we be so impudent as to say that He doesn't have a right. But this challenges the way that people think about their lives because people think that their life is their own and they can do whatever they want with their life and they have no one to answer to for their life. But what we need to understand is that we actually have a stewardship. In contrast to Frank Sinatra way back in the day who crooned, I did it my way. Right? In contrast, more recently, 
uh, to Bon Jovi, It's My Life, right? Or whoever else we could think about. This is all, this is all through our song lyrics. This is all through magazines. This is all through uh, the advertising that we see on TV. It's all about you. It's all about what you want to do. But what we need to understand is that we have a stewardship. Making the best use of the moment means not doing whatever we want to do. Not make the best use of the moment the way you might see some consumer good advertise and say, make the most of your life, buy this car. Make the most of your life, take this trip, take this vacation. No, make the most of your life has a very specific meaning in this passage. And as I said, as it goes on to verse 18, that specific meaning is to understand what the will of the Lord is. We, this helps us see that when we want to make the best use of the moment, we need to think. Understand is a thinking word. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's a, that's a thinking phrase. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And this is especially underlined that it's a thinking thing. When we look at the first half of that phrase, pardon me, it's verse 17. I think I said verse 18 a moment ago. But verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Greek word for foolish here is basically, if I can bring it across to an English equivalent, is basically a mind. Understand? The prefix a and then mind, or without a mind, right? So an atheist is somebody who is not a theist, somebody who is, as they think, without God, right? Or a always negates what comes after it. So the foolish here is a-minded, not minded, without minded. So do not be without a mind, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When we come to thinking about how to make the best use of the moment, we have to come to think. We see that it's not just up to our feelings or up to our whims, but we need to think and understand what is the will of the Lord. And we're not left to speculate here. God's will has been revealed. All of Scripture reveals to us God's will. But particularly, God's will is summarized in the Ten Commandments and in the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. God's will is summarized here. This is the will of the Lord. We don't have to wonder. I wonder what God's will is. God's will is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself, to have no other gods before Him, to not misuse His name, not to make any images of Him to keep the Sabbath day holy, to honor your father and your mother, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to bear false witness, not to covet. This is the will of the Lord. We don't have to guess. So understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand that. Some people don't know that. Some people wonder, what does God want from us? What does God expect from us? What is the will of the Lord? And they don't understand that these things are a summary of God's will. So we need to understand that. And in understanding that, we need to also make sure that we don't understand it in a reductionistic way. 
we, we talk regularly because we want it to be clear in the minds of everybody who attends this church that the Ten Commandments are not just prohibiting the most severe breach of that commandment. In other words, do not murder means more than simply do not go out and stab someone to death or, or choke someone to death. Do not murder involves, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, even having unrighteous anger in your heart towards someone. Right? And likewise, lust involves, or pardon me, the prohibition of adultery involves even lust. And idolatry is more than simply bowing down before a block of wood or a block of stone or a block of precious metals and worshipping an actual handcrafted idol. But idolatry, having no other gods before God, involves even having nothing else that is ultimate to us but God Himself. <clears throat> and we also want to guard against seeing sin merely as the things that we do. In other words, only acts of commission. In other words, sin is not merely sin of commission. In other words, committing murder, committing adultery, committing idolatry, etc., etc. But there is what is also called sins of omission, failing to do what we ought to do. When murder is prohibited, acting for the flourishing of human life is implicitly commanded. When adultery is prohibited, faithfulness in a marriage is implicitly commanded. When worshipping false gods, having other gods before God is prohibited, the true, pure, heartfelt, devoted worship of the one true God is implicitly commanded. And so sin, avoiding sin is more than just avoiding doing bad things, but avoiding sin is also doing the right things. So theologians talk about it like this. In the, when we come to think of the Ten Commandments, what is prohibited is never to be done. We're never to murder. We're never to commit adultery. We're never to commit idolatry. We're never to bear false witness, etc., etc. But when it comes to what is prescribed, what is, to, what is prescribed is to be done as we have opportunity. And so, obviously we can't always be doing everything at the same time that God prescribes for us to do in His Word. And so as we read the way that the Ten Commandments are unpacked, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we understand that we can't be doing all of these things at, at all times. We can't always be being generous with our money and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God and serving our neighbor with actions and speaking to our children and training them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and, and you can't do all of these things at the same time, obviously. And so what we understand is that what is, to, what is prescribed is to be done as we have opportunity. And so each specific prescription of what we're supposed to be doing is not to be done 24-7, but as we have opportunity. And this is what we need to think through some priorities are higher than others. <clears throat> so, 
Jesus tells the famous story of the Good Samaritan where there's a guy who gets beaten up by robbers and a religious person is passing and they cross to the other side of the street and carry on. Where were they going? Maybe to the temple? Maybe to work? I don't know. But they didn't stop and take care of this guy who's bleeding and in a bad state on the side of the road. Is it wrong to go to the temple? No. Is it, is it wrong to go to work? No. But in that situation, the thrust of Jesus' parable is that what they should have done was stopped and took care of this guy. So, it doesn't take much wisdom to know if we should transgress God's law. If we should do what God prohibits. Should you murder someone in cold blood? No. Should you worship a false god? No. Should you steal from a friend if he accidentally forgets his wallet at your house? No. It doesn't take much wisdom. But, when we come to thinking about the duties that are prescribed for us in Scripture, when we come to thinking about avoiding sins of omission, we do need wisdom. It takes wisdom to figure out what priorities should take precedence over other priorities. If we can't be doing all of these things 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, then it takes wisdom to figure out what we should be doing, when, and in what proportion to our other duties. Which is why in Ephesians chapter 5, looking back at our text, in verse 15, before Paul introduces the main imperative, which is make the best use of the moment, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. He equates those two things, walking wisely with making the best use of the time. So when we realize that our life is a stewardship and we, we ought to live in a way that is accordance, in accordance with the will of God, we, realize, we come to realize that it's a thinking thing. Because the scripture says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be mindless, but think about what the will of the Lord is. Look at God's law. Look at what He has revealed to us in terms of the way that He wants us to live. And then try to use wisdom in applying God's law to your life. Obviously, as I said, it doesn't take much wisdom to know that we shouldn't transgress God's commandments. But how we should obey the positive duties that we have, how we should obey uh, all the various commands, juggle all the various responsibilities that the Scripture puts upon us, does take wisdom. Wisdom is the best methods for the best ends. It's the ability to, to use the best methods for the best ends. We need to try to use the best methods for the best ends as we go through our life, figuring out how we should juggle our various responsibilities, how we should make the best use of each moment. Let me give you a few examples. If you're getting lost in the abstractness of this, let me bring it back down to earth a little bit. Rest and even leisure are prescribed in the Scriptures. We read regularly through the Gospels that Jesus slept. We read even in Mark 6.31 that Jesus said to His disciples, Come away by yourselves and rest a while. Then it says, For they had no leisure even to eat. So both rest and even leisure 
are good things that are actually prescribed for us in Scripture. Psalm 127, verse 2 is more explicit if you are still in doubt, uh, which says that in vain you rise early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives sleep to His beloved, or God gives to His beloved in their sleep. But either way, for the sake of our sermon this morning, the point is that sleep is spoken well of as a gift from God in Psalm 127 too. So rest and even leisure are prescribed in Scripture. But here's where we need wisdom. How much is enough? And how much is too much? So, is it making the best use of the moment to set your alarm clock for five? Or is it making the best use of the moment to set your alarm clock for six? Or seven? How much should we be sleeping? How should we be getting up earlier and spending time reading our Bible and praying? Should we be staying in bed longer and getting more of the rest that God wants us to have? If we get up too early, maybe we won't have the strength to do the other things that God wants us to do throughout the day. But obviously, and I suspect for most of us, or many of us, uh, a challenge that perpetually faces us is probably the temptation to stay in bed too long. In Proverbs, we read about the sluggard saying there's a lion in the streets as a reason why he's going to stay in bed. Or again, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns in his bed. This is, this is an opposite error. Right? I shouldn't say for most of us, for many. People are wired differently. Some people are probably wired to neglect their sleep too much. And some people are probably wired to indulge their sleep too much. But in any case, you can understand that it's a good thing and it's actually prescribed by Scripture, but we need wisdom to know how do we do it and in what proportion in relation to our other responsibilities, in relation to the other things that God enjoins upon us. Or social media has many advantages. Staying in touch with friends and family, particularly uh, take even my family, for example, lots of our friends and family are overseas. And so to be able to share pictures of how our boys are growing and what's going on with our life here in Barbados, it's a great thing and it's a good tool. Uh, We can use it, obviously, to share important information and discuss important information, etc., etc. But again, though, how much is enough? How much is too much? This is basically a form of communication. But on one hand, if people are sending us messages trying to talk to us and have legitimate conversations with us. Maybe it's good to respond to those messages. But on the other hand, you can easily kill lots and lots of time, too much time, scrolling through Facebook or scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or whatever the case may be. Right? So, again, wisdom here. Family is good. Third example. Caring for family is uh, a man's responsibility and even a qualification for eldership in the church, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Eli, the Old Testament priest, is indicted in Scripture for honoring his sons more than God. So how much prioritization of family is enough? And how much is too much or work again we need to go and pay the bills 
work is actually not just a necessary evil, but work is actually part of the creation mandate. Creating and facilitating and promulgating light, order, life. These are good things. But how much is enough and how much is too much? When are we being lazy and we need to do more work or be more diligent? When are we overworking and we need to work less? And then you put all of these things together. And these are just four examples. But you put these things together and you see that wisdom is necessary in order to make the best use of the moment. That is not as, it's not a variable that you just plug in various things into the equation. We need wisdom with these things. Especially when unexpected things come up. We talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Especially when you're in the middle of something and somebody is in need. How severe is the need? Do we need to meet it at all? If we have a responsibility to try to help meet it, how much responsibility do we have to try to meet it? Do we, do we need to immediately try to meet it or should we try to put it off a couple of hours to a more convenient time, etc., etc.? You understand, we need wisdom. Make the best use of the moment involves understanding what the will of the Lord is and using wisdom to apply God's law to our lives. Trying to figure out how the will of the Lord speaks specifically to our specific circumstances and trying to make the best use of the moment in a way that honors the Lord. <coughs> but in addition to thinking about how in addition to thinking about how to steward our lives well to make the best use of each moment, we also need to yield to the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Instead of being filled like a drunk is with wine, we should be filled like a sail is with wind. The, the words used for filled are actually two different words. So we're not comparing, we're not comparing the Holy Spirit's filling to a liquid being poured into us. Rather, the common usage is to be carried along and is used often in ancient Greek literature as sails being filled with wind. And so the contrast here is, instead of being filled like a drunk is with wine, be filled the way a sail is with wind. And so the, the comparison here is not quantity but power or, or impulse the way that uh, a drunk receives impulses as it were from the wine really it's not from the wine I think we can all understand this but he's speaking loosely but the alcohol fuels or powers various in some cases we could say escapades or at least at the very least actions, right? There's, there's power or impulse coming from the wine. As so it is with a sail, there's power or impulse coming from the wind. And so this is the kind of comparison that Paul is making in this section. And what's implied is that once we know through wisdom and understanding 
what we should do, how to make, how to make the best use of each moment, we're still not going to be able to do it until we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So like a sailor knows how to set the sails and which direction he needs to go, he can't go anywhere without the wind. So it is with us. We may know where we need to go. We may understand what the law of God is. We may give careful thought and use wisdom to try to ascertain how God's law applies to us, how we might balance the various things that are prescribed in Scripture, uh, the various duties, the various responsibilities that we have. We might spend time and prayerfully set our schedules before us and think, about how much time we're going to allot to each thing in order to make the best use of the moment. We may give careful thought to these things. We may set our sails, as it were. We may know what direction we need to go. But just as a sailor is powerless without the wind, so we are powerless without the Holy Spirit. If you can maintain the status quo of your life without the Holy Spirit... You're not living as you ought. If you can maintain the status quo of your life without the Holy Spirit, you're not living as you ought. And if your idea of what it means to make the best use of the moment, if your idea of what it, what it means to... understand the will of the Lord and use wisdom to apply it to your life if your idea of what that schedule looks like would be accomplishable by anybody with some self-discipline, some self-control, some willpower, then again, it's it's not, you you haven't got it right. Because we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not like a, is never presented to us in Scripture as like a bonus on the Christian life. Like you can live the Christian life adequately by yourself, but if you need a little bit of, if you want a little bit of bonus power, then you need the Holy Spirit. The, the, the scripture never talks that way, ever, about the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Not, not we should desire the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit gives us a little boost. We need the Holy Spirit. This is the way that the Scripture uniformly talks about the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I say, by implication, if you can maintain the status quo in your life without the Holy Spirit, you're not living as you ought. If your schedule would be achievable by anyone with discipline, self-control, and willpower, your priorities, when I say your schedule, I'm speaking more than just what you do with your time, but how you do it how you accomplish it as well. Then again, you're, you're not doing it as you ought. We can't go through this life with the kind of Godward attitude that we should have. Bringing ourselves to do our work, our vocation, with the kind of intensity that we ought, working as unto the Lord. We can't be diligent enough in training up our children in the way they should go. We can't as husbands love our wives as Christ loved the church, we can't as wives submit to our husbands as unto Christ. We can't have the wisdom and the understanding 
that we need to make the best use of each moment. We can't do all of the things that the Scripture tells us to do without the Holy Spirit. We can't put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, as Romans 8 tells us to do, but by the Spirit. We can't exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which should be obvious, but by the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? That if your life could be lived without the help of the Holy Spirit, then it's not making the best use of each moment. So making the best use of each moment involves not only understanding what the will of the Lord is and using wisdom to try to figure out what that looks like in our specific circumstances, but making the best use of each moment, if we're actually going to do it and not just talk about it, it involves being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on immediately from giving this imperative, make the best use of each moment, describing that, to say, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit indicating to us where the power is going to come from. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in our lives. So how do we be filled with the Spirit? There's lots that we could say, but I'm going to say two things this morning. I'm just going to try to be practical and specific. How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm going to say two things. First, Do what God wants you to be doing, or attempt to do what God wants you to be doing. The Holy Spirit is not going to give us power to sin. And the Holy Spirit is not going to give us power to be lazy and indolent. So if you're like, well, I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe it's because you're not doing anything that the Spirit would help you do. Right? You're sitting there wasting time and going, I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, you think the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to sit there and waste time? Right? You're, you're living a life of unrepentant sin and you're saying, well, I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. I go to church and you talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, but I don't feel it. Well, that's because the Holy Spirit is not going to give you power to help you sin. So, so first, try to do what God wants you to be doing and ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit to help you do that. And maybe then you're going to start to feel some real spiritual power at work in your life. The Holy Spirit is not, or the power of the Holy Spirit is not ordinarily given so far prior to the action that the action itself feels easy and natural to initiate. In other words, it's, it's rare. I'm not going to say it could never happen or God has declared it's never going to happen, but it's rare that somebody will be lazy sitting on their couch and all of a sudden just be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit to go read their Bible. It could happen. And sometimes, I'm sure graciously, it does happen when God just wants to reach one of His wayward children. But the ordinary situation is not that you're just going to sit there doing nothing and then all of a sudden have the power of the Holy Spirit pull you almost irresistibly to go do something right. Ordinarily, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is not given that far in front of the action, if you know what I mean. There's almost always a battle to do what God wants. And then as we begin engaging in what God wants us to be doing, we find that the Holy Spirit helps us. And so in some ways it's a little bit like moving towards an automatic door that opens for you as you get near to it. So you stand across the street and say, I can't go in that store. 
the door is closed. Well, why don't you try walking towards it and see if it opens? No, it will never open. Try walking towards it and see. Right? This is one practical way to be filled with, which in the context means empowered by the Holy Spirit. You want Holy Spirit power? Start trying to do what God wants you to be doing. Secondly, how can you be Spirit-filled? How can you obey this command to be filled with the Spirit? There are three prompters. I'm going to call them prompters in our lives. Well, really there are four. Okay, the, the fourth that I wasn't even going to mention is other people. Other people can obviously prompt us to do something. But I'm going to talk about sort of inward inclinations come from three places. Right? That we, the thoughts that we have, the ideas that come into our minds, apart from other people's involvement, come from three places. The first is yourself. Sometimes you just think of things to do. And sometimes you should say no to the things that you think to do. And sometimes you should say yes to the things that you think to do. Sometimes you come up with really bad ideas and you shouldn't do them. Sometimes if you're trusting in Christ Jesus and you're a regenerate person, you've been born again, you've been given a new heart, sometimes you come up with a good idea. And it's not wrong to acknowledge that. So sometimes we're, we just have a thought of something we should do and we should say yes and go do it. All right, but then secondly and supernaturally, we have ideas that come to us from demons, fallen angels. They can't read our minds, but somehow it seems from reading the scriptures and from anecdotal uh, evidence that thoughts can be implanted into our minds, that thoughts can enter into our minds by demonic suggestion. should go with what I was saying, but you should always say no when demons suggest certain things, right? And so when we, when we recognize that thoughts are coming into our minds that are not in accordance with the will of God, it should be intuitive to us that this is not going to be making the best use of the moment. You understand? So we should say no. But thirdly, thirdly, the Holy Spirit prompts us. As Christian people, the Holy Spirit lives within us and prompts us. So sometimes it might be hard to distinguish whether it is your regenerate self or whether it is the Holy Spirit prompting you because you may have an inclination from a renewed heart to go read your Bible. Or the Holy Spirit may prompt you to go read your Bible. And so sometimes it can be hard to exactly distinguish. But we're talking about specifically and practically how can we obey the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's a good way. You're sitting on your couch and you don't feel like reading your Bible. And a thought comes into your mind, you should read your Bible. Do you think that's coming from yourself or Satan or the Holy Spirit? Well, if you don't feel like reading your Bible, it's probably not coming from yourself. It's definitely not coming from Satan, which means by process of elimination, it's coming from the Holy Spirit. You see, we have these prompts from the Holy Spirit at various times throughout the day. Day by day, why don't you go over and talk to that person about Christ? Nah, I gotta go. Right? That, that, is, that is not being filled by the Holy Spirit, not being powered by the Holy Spirit. When you receive those prompts, act on them. Right? And so, so again, 
The Holy Spirit is not going to prompt you to do something sinful, which means if you're supposed to be on your way to work and being on time for work, you shouldn't be stopping to talk to people on the way under the pretext of evangelization. Right? You understand the Holy Spirit's not going to get you to be irresponsible under the pretense of doing spiritual things. So if you're supposed to be providing for your family and you're staying at home all day reading theological blogs, that's not the Holy Spirit prompting you to do that in that context. Because by doing that, you're actually sinning in that you're defaulting on what you should be doing. You understand what I mean? But within those parameters, when you're being prompted to do something that's in accordance to God's law, that's not going to make you violate another one of God's laws, that's the Holy Spirit. So when you're sitting there on a Saturday afternoon and you're not working, and you don't have any particular responsibilities to be anywhere else, and you're sitting there maybe watching TV, playing a video game, or just laying in your bed resting or whatever, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong, But then you have this thought, why don't you go read your Bible or why don't you spend some time in prayer? Obey that prompt. Listen to that prompt and go go do what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. Right? And so, those are just two things. One is do what God wants you to be doing. Right? Don't ask for the Holy Spirit's power to help you do nothing or to help you sin. But, But then secondly, be aware of the promptings that are happening inwardly and Obey the Holy Spirit's promptings. Go with the Holy Spirit's promptings. So, those are two practical ways. So we need to yield, we need to first understand, use wisdom to figure out what does it look like to make the best use of each moment. And then secondly, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to actually be able to go do that. The third thing we see in this passage is what the wise understanding and spirit-filled life looks like. There's a contrast here between what we might expect given our wider context here in Barbados and what Paul actually says. Immediately after he talks about being spirit-filled, what does he say? Not running laps of the church and waving purple flags. right? Not having deep and profound emotional experiences not singing uh, mindless uh, lyrics over and over and over again working ourselves up into a state of frenzy what does he say after he talks about being spirit filled what does it mean to be spirit filled he describes it and I think, it, I think for a lot of people in Barbados, it would be counterintuitive what Paul says in this section. You know the first thing that Paul says after he says, be filled with the Spirit? Sing psalms. The first thing. Sing psalms. Incidentally, that's why we sing psalms every week. This morning we sang a few verses from Psalm 96. But that's one reason why we do that. It's actually explicitly commanded in Scripture that we sing psalms among other things. So we don't only sing psalms. It doesn't say psalms, psalms, and psalms. But neither does it say spiritual songs, spiritual songs, and spiritual songs. And so we try to sing a mix of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as it says here. We don't leave psalms out. So that's just kind of incidental. But back to the main idea. 
the first thing that he says when he, he talks about being spirit-filled is psalmsing. And that fits into a broader category of God-focusedness. We're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. What does it look like to be spirit-filled? It looks like having heart-engaged worship. Having heart-engaged worship. Not just coming... You could sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but if your heart is not engaged, look at the text. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? No. Because verse 19 says, Make melody to the Lord with your heart. See, sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. So being spirit-filled is, is not less than singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but it's more than that. It's that our heart is engaged in worship to God. We need to have our hearts engaged in worship. We need to be worshipful people. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be worshipers. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be real singers. And in saying that, I don't mean that you're going you're to get better at holding a tune when you're filled with the Spirit. But what I do mean is that our singing needs to be Spirit-filled singing. That we need to come and we need to sing with, with great gusto, with great vigor, with great intensity. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us as we sing. That we might sing as we ought. That's why every week we also open up with a prayer asking the Holy Spirit to help us as we worship. Because if we're going to be proper worshipers, we need to be Spirit-filled worshipers as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't help us, then we just sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs without our hearts Engaged and without the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're really not obeying this section, right? So, having our hearts engaged with God. Secondly, having our lips engaged in, first, praise to God. We're praising Him. And we're also giving thanks to Him. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks to God. Our hearts are to be engaged with God and our lips are to be engaged in thanks to God. Spirit-filled people will be people that are filled with thankfulness to God and whose lips are expressing thankfulness to God regularly. Now, did you know there's actually no command in Scripture to pray before we eat? You're not going to find that anywhere. But it's a good habit. And Christians have gotten this habit over long periods of time. I think partly by following Jesus' example, who prayed before he ate. Uh, but also because it's a good thing to do when we get things from God. And our daily life, our daily sustenance, our daily nourishment is a good thing from God. So, so why not take that opportunity to pray and thank God for our food? And while we're at it, thank God for other good things. While we're at it, be thankful people. Not just cursory, oh, we pray because we have to do it, but that we would be people that are filled with thankfulness to God and take every opportunity to give thanks to God. And our lips also ought to be engaged not only in praise and thanks to God, but also in the edification of others. Look at what it says in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when you come to church... And you sing, it's not, it's not 
all about you and God. It's about you and God and everybody else here. It's not, we don't come to church as consumers to just get an inspiring experience or something like this. Nor do we come to church merely as individual worshipers worshiping in a vacuum as if it's just us and God here. Sometimes even in, in like new, newer, there's, and there's nothing wrong with newer songs, by the way. We actually have a lot of new songs in our hymn book. So the way I said that, I don't mean to imply that newer songs are bad, but you do find in some newer songs, lyrics like, it's just you and me in this place, God, and I just want to worship you and nobody else is here, and I just want to focus only on you, and so on and so forth. And you read and you sing songs like this, but this actually misses the biblical conception of what we're doing when we gather in corporate worship. That not only are we singing and making melody to God, but we're addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That we are, we are giving thought ourselves to the lyrics, and we're singing to one another that they might give thought to the lyrics as well. What this means by implication is that when you, when you fail to be here, you're robbing your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're, obviously, there are legitimate excuses to not be at church. Works of necessity and works of mercy are accepted in the Scriptures. But there are illegitimate reasons to miss church. And I, I think we can all think of a few. But what this means is that when we're not here, for an illegitimate reason, we're failing to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Or, even if we're here, but we're mumbling through, or we're not singing at all, we're failing to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're failing to make the corporate worship of this church be what it ought to be, which is robust, hearty congregational singing for the edification of everybody involved. And so we really ought to <coughs> prepare our hearts <coughs> prior to Sundays that when we come, we're not, we're not coming to be passive. We're not coming to watch Pastor John as he worships or to, we're, we're, we're not watching the people who have a role in worship do their role. We're coming to do our role in worship. Part of which is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. <clears throat> so our lips ought to be engaged not only in praise and thanks to God, but also in the edification of others. And implicitly in this passage would be non, in non-musical forms as well. And the same would be true of what I just said about missing church or about being disengaged even when you come. That when, when we fail to talk with one another about spiritual things, when we fail to inquire about one another's spiritual lives, circumstances, when we fail to show concern about the uh, issues and the difficulties that brothers and sisters in Christ are facing in their everyday lives, when we fail to uh, speak to one another and engage with one another, we're actually failing to give what the Scripture says that we owe, that we're, we need to be addressing one another. 
this is part and parcel of being a healthy and spirit-filled church, is that we're addressing one another for the edification of each other. <clears throat> but that's implicit in that in this text and not an, an explicit thing. And then lastly, we're to have our hands engaged in serving others. So our hearts engaged in worship, our lips engaged in worship and in the edification of others, and our hands engaged in serving others. We'll talk about the idea of submission more next week, but suffice it to say for today that in verse 21 when it says that we ought to submit to one another, at least part of what that means is that we ought to be seeking to serve and bless others. That we ought to be considering others' interests, not just our own interests. And so a couple of applications of that point. One is that the comfort-driven life is not the wise, understanding, spiritual, spirit-filled life. So if you're all about your own comfort, you're not living a wise, understanding, spirit-filled life, and you're not making the best use of the moment. Making the best use of the moment looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which means at least partly seeking to serve one another in action as well as in words. And uh, so the comfort-driven life is not the wise, understanding, spirit-filled life. Obviously, comfort-driven could be on a spectrum and on the extreme end of the spectrum, people who are selfish, narcissistic, never think of others, explicitly exclude others from their thinking. They're only and always thinking about themselves. People who are always telling themselves and maybe even telling others, I don't owe you anything. You know, why are you coming to me? It's not my problem. Obviously, obviously I think we understand that's not a wise, understanding, spirit-filled life that makes the best use of each moment. But even on a lesser end of the spectrum, even if we're just kind of inconsiderate of others, even if we're not explicitly like, I'm not going to do anything for others, even if we're just not thinking about how to serve others, it just doesn't cross our minds, that we just don't think of, well, how can I submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? How can I serve and bless others in the church out of reverence for Christ? Even that kind of comfort-driven life where your default is just always to be thinking about yourself rather than to be thinking about others, even if you're not sort of mean-spirited about it, or, or consciously selfish about it, even that is not the wise, understanding, spirit-filled life. Even that is not making the best use of each moment. What we should be doing is figuring out how do we love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then, <coughs> even further along the spectrum, perhaps you have good intentions to love and serve others, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, but you're negligent or undisciplined. So you don't follow through on the things that you're supposed to follow through on, or you procrastinate on the things that you're supposed to be doing, and so you, do, you end up doing a shoddy job in the end, or you're late for where you say you're going to be or what you say you're going to be doing. These things, again, are not the wise, understanding, spirit-filled life. That kind of lifestyle is also not making the best use of the moment. And so we need to try to address these things when we see them in ourselves and try to figure out how 
can I be making the best use of the moment? How can I be doing God's law, applying God's law to the specific circumstances of my life? How can I be trusting in the Holy Spirit to help me, to empower me? How can I be having my heart engaged in worship to God, having my lips engaged in praise to God and thankfulness to God, having my lips engaged also in the edification of others? And how can I have my hands engaged in serving others? This is what this passage talks to us about, what it looks like and how we are to make the best use of the moment. Again, in, in closing, we don't want to reduce the Christian life to the commands of the Christian life. Right? This is part of one letter, which includes, by grace you are saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so we don't want to give the impression that if you're not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, what you need to do is start trying harder to live a life that pleases God. The reality is that none of us do make the best use of each moment. Even, even as Christians, we sin in this way. And so even though God's will is the Ten Commandments, we broke the Ten Commandments. Even though God's will is the two greatest commandments, love God and love neighbor, we've broke the two greatest commandments. So the Christian life is fundamentally not trying harder to be a better person, but the Christian life is fundamentally resting your soul in Christ Jesus for salvation, recognizing you're a lawbreaker and that you need Him to forgive you for your sin and that you need to be pardoned for His sake, that you need to put your sin on Him at the cross and have Him bear the wrath that you deserve for your sin and that you need to receive His righteousness in the place of your unrighteousness in order that you would be acceptable to God. That is fundamentally what the Christian life is. But having become Christians, there's a right and a wrong way to live. And what I've just enumerated, what I've just discussed, is part of the right way to live. These are the instructions that Paul gives to Christians after having become Christians. So may it be that those of us who have wandered and in fact still do wander and yet are trusting in Christ for salvation from our sins and for salvation from our wanderings, May it be that we rest ourselves solely in the pardon that is ours for Christ's sake and endeavor to get right back on the right path for His glory. For those of you who have not yet trusted in Christ Jesus, I really implore you to to do that this morning. Trust in Christ. Don't, Don't take what I've just said as good suggestions for the way you should live your life apart from Christ. Or don't take, don't take this as merely just some sort of inspiration for how to be a better person. But, but first things first, trust your soul to Christ Jesus and then begin trying to live the way that the Scripture instructs us to live.